Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we, I'm here today with Katerina and Daniel. We are starting The Warrior Prophet. It's the second book in the Prince of Nothing trilogy. It's We're going to be talking about chapters one through four today, the first hundred pages or so. So if you're reading along, we're trying to make it easy on you. <laughs> so, uh, Daniel, do you want to start us off with an introduction? I'm Daniel. I've reread these books a couple times now. It's been fun to join along in this reread and have someone to talk about it with. Yeah, and I'm Katarina, and this is my second time reading through The Warrior Prophet. And uh, I realized that I remember it significantly, significantly less than The Darkness That Comes Before. So uh, this is going to be a exciting read, I think. Oh. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the first, like the recap at the beginning of the book, I felt like if I wasn't, if I didn't reread with, with you guys, if I didn't, if we didn't have these uh, podcasts, I think it would have filled in a lot of gaps for me that I missed the first time I read the book. Cause I think it was almost like a, like a nudge in case you missed it. This is what really, this is kind of what happened. Cause it, it was, it went from being, um, you know, everything was, was there, but it wasn't too obvious to this is what happened. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was, it was, there were things that I wouldn't have noticed without both of you helping. So I wonder if that was on purpose to kind of uh, make it easier on people that were coming back for the second book. Did, did any, either of you get that impression? Well, I think Baker is nice in the way that he uh, gives you the summary of the previous book in, in every new book that you read. Um, and like, yeah, I did, I do, I do have this, do have a similar experience in that, especially in my first read, um, even if it's just a summary, he does connect some things that you might not have connected yourself, or he does put things into con into context to make it more, um, obvious why he put those things there. So I think definitely they help, especially if you're, if you're not, if you're not clear in some details or some plot points, uh, reading those summaries does help a lot. And without someone like us here to like reiterate certain things, I could see how you might kind of forget them as you read on. Yeah. Or have trouble figuring out who like the unreliable and reliable narrators are when the truth's being told when it's not. I think you mentioned something about Serway and Nair's and Kellis's relationship that you didn't, or you might not have caught from the previous book. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things that, well, there are some things that we talked about that weren't wasn't in the recap that made me feel special because I felt like we were like ahead of the curve. But um, yeah, one of the things that, um, I'm not sure if we've if we've talked about it or I just I'm just a a brick that missed it. But um, it does ex explicitly explicitly say that Kellis was courting Surway purposefully to for the purpose of uh, you know kind of manipulating uh, I forget his name Neor um, Neor I couldn't remember how to pronounce it. So that was the reason he was courting Surway and was. Um, you know, paying attention to her because that was his way of manipulating, pulling strings and, um, you know, getting, kind of getting some leverage on him or seeing how he reacts. And so that's something that I, 
didn't quite catch. I'm not sure if we had talked about that or not. I just told you that Kellis doesn't do anything without a purpose. Yeah. Every word's like a, a tool. He's listening to everything and just getting ready to use his tools, weapons, maybe even. And Saraway might have like a duality of reasons he kept her because she also like worships him like a god. So it, it might like help other people see him that way. Yeah, and I think Kellis himself tells Nayor that he is not capable of love. So um, if he's not capable of loving Sirway, there should be another reason why he's chosen to um, to keep her around. Poor Sirway. <laughs> we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I did. Um, if I was, if I hadn't uh, been talking with, about the first book with both of you, the way we have been, I would have really appreciated that first uh, recap because it, there were things that I, I know I missed the first time. So I think it's it's nice to have the, <laughs> the little helping hand at the beginning. The recaps just get bigger and bigger and kind of cooler and cooler, too. Hmm. Like, if you get to the second series, the recaps are pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, I feel like in the second series, he might even include things he doesn't tell you in the books, possibly. Just just like, or like expands that are alluded on, to, yeah. Yeah, or expands on them a little bit. So uh, do do read the summaries if you can. Interesting. So yeah, it was it was good stuff. Um, so the beginning, it is uh, Aka know you know he he goes all this time without you know knowing whether or not the consult really exists or not, and now he knows, and he's struggling with that. That's kind of. Um, you know, just I just imagine being in that position of never knowing and you've, it's confirmed that you know all these things are happening. So kind of felt a little sorry for him. Yeah, he's he's having full blown existential crisis in this first 100 pages, and I mean, like you have to remember, he is or he was one of the skeptics, like one of the people in the mandate who didn't really believe that this console was around anymore. So for him to uh, have this revelation must be maybe even more shocking than for someone like Natsera, who was like firmly believes that the console is still a big player in the three C's. Yeah, he's he's been going through some inner struggles, debating his his faith to the school or just his faith to himself, I guess, as a teacher. Yeah. Because Akamian's a good teacher. He's just a terrible spy. I don't know if you'd want to be one of his students, though. They don't have such a great, <laughs> such a great track record. Uh, it seems like he's a good teacher, but none of his students seem to, seem to survive very long. Proyas is still doing good. That's true. Well, I guess relatively. So. Yeah. Depends on the metrics, I guess, that you use. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe like that 
is the reason why he's so um, torn about uh, the consulate and about reporting to the mandate about Kellis because, like, when, I think where we start, he's already taken Kellis on as a student. Now he's mm-hmm. again in a position where he has to uh, decide if he wants to, if we, if he'll betray him for his school, and potentially for the sake of saving the world, or if, if he should be uh, loyal to to Kellis, to his student, and and protect him. And I guess that's uh, that's uh, definitely adding on to the crisis of identity <laughs> that he's going through right now. Yeah, I think the question of do you save and Kellis must have must be pretty good at what he does for Eka to go back and forth whether it's worth his life to avoid an apocalypse or not. It seems like seems like an easy decision, but maybe the apocalypse is just unavoidable though, no matter what they do with him. And little do they know, but Kellis knows that there's already an Annis Rimber in the world. So who knows what the prophecy means or who the prophecy's talking about currently. But Akanian thinks he knows. Lots of people think they know lots of things in this book. So cryptic. And uh, there's, it's kind of related, uh, but I wanted to get a theory. Well, not really a theory, but a guess, because you know, we're talking about Akamian, whether or not he's going to um, you know, tell everyone that Killis is, he, he believes, is a harbinger of the second apocalypse. But at the beginning of chapter four, there's a quote from him um, that doesn't sound like things are going so well. And uh, later in the compendium of the first holy war, it seems a strange thing to recall these events like waking to find I had narrowly missed a fatal fall in the darkness whenever I think back I'm filled with wonder that I still live and with horror that I still travel by night so it doesn't sound like things are things go too well uh, based on a couple of the clues there so hmm but I mean at least well I guess we can say that he Akami at least might be still alive at the end of the holy war Right, if he's writing the compendium, I don't know. That seems to be the implication, anyway. Um, yeah, I'll only give a stone face. That's all you get to that. <laughs> and for you, uh, for your podcast listeners, he does indeed have a stone face right now. Uh, confirmed. <laughs> I'm just laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there are different people seem to have different opinions on whether uh, Callus should be surrendered to the mandate or not. Um, I mean, Callus obviously thinks or tries is trying to convince Akamian that uh, no, um, he does not want to die as a prisoner of some crazy sorceress. Um, Akamian's very torn. Um, Esmenid is very sure, at least at the beginning of the book. Um, oh, yeah, when she's he- back. She's back. Yes, well, we'll probably get to that, but she has a very firm opinion on Callus at the beginning when she hears about him uh, from Akamian. She, like, she changed her mind later, um, 
but she's like no are you are you crazy like of course you can sacrifice one person to potentially prevent an apocalypse like what how can you even what what's there to debate like go ahead and do it she went from that logic to <clears throat> saying no in three days maybe not until after she runs it to someone else that she recognizes, which I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, an old friend of hers. So that's an old friend. But um, yeah, I think I wasn't sure if that spoke to um, and she had also interacted with Kellis after that too. So I wonder if he is starting to influence uh, everyone. I mean, maybe it gives you an idea of like the descript, like the influence that Kellis has in person, right? On the people, like Kellis has spent a lot of time with the commune and trying to um, sort of endear himself to a commune. Whereas like Esmond at the beginning, she, like she's only heard him described from other people and she doesn't understand the appeal that Kellis has um, as a person and, and like personal contact. Um, I wonder what, if Kellis has influenced these people this much, what do you think his dad's like right now, Steve? How do you imagine Malingus currently? Yeah, I, I wondered that too, and I wondered if he does have, have that much influence, then why do not, well, I, I get, so my initial reaction is, why don't more people know about him? But then if he does have this influence, then maybe he's pulling everybody's strings and he's, this is just his, um, his world and we're all living in it. I don't know. Or maybe Poker face. He might already be dead. You just never know yet. Yeah. Never know. There was a funny, uh, parable on, uh, page 26. If you're on the paper copy, but about the young bull, and the cows. You guys remember that? Yes, I do. The Sylvendi parable or something mm -hmm. like that? Which basically, well, I guess it serves a lot of purposes, right? But I thought Kellis starts telling that story right when uh, Akami is about to tell Zainimus about <laughs> the prophecy. So I thought it was very suspicious that everyone got suddenly distracted by uh, this anecdote that the the parable that uh, Kellis is telling. It's like I think I mean Kellis probably knows that if like once the word gets out um, that he's the uh, the harbinger of the apocalypse, things might not go as as smoothly for him as they they've gone so far. But the parable itself is also interesting. He's slipped up with Skios and like made a mistake and he realizes <clears throat> that kind of, and you could tell at the end of chapter four that he knew he made a mistake. But, mm. but that parable, <clears throat> I thought it was interesting how the Sylvendi, who it came from, had one meaning, and they like everyone derived their own meaning from it. Even like later on in the chapter, it might have been hard to notice, but when I came in, I think 
he was either with the Kamian or with the girl he found first. He like alludes to that saying that he was like the one <clears throat> she was the one sheep he was trading for the ten bowl or something. Mm. That was like pages and pages later though. But words are tricky. <laughs> Who's to say which one's right and which one's wrong? They all have truth in them. Do they? Everything has a little truth in it. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can uh, maybe you can deduce from that that perhaps we shouldn't take all these quotes and epigraphs as seriously as we sometimes do. Um, or maybe at least you can read them multiple ways. Yeah, that's uh, for anyone on the on the paper version. They refer to it again on page fifty-two. It's actually about twenty pages later. I thought it was closer, but uh, they, do talk, they, they do reference one lamb for ten bulls. A, a priestess had told him once, as though she possessed a calculus to me calculus to measure such things. One lamb for ten bulls. At the time, Achaemian had laughed. Now he understood. Well, yeah, I'm going to do reference it again. And I think <clears throat> maybe that whole parable showed us that some truths are more powerful than others. Like Kellis's truth seems to be just hold more weight than other truths. Yeah, or maybe it depends on who the interpreter of the truth is more than what the truth actually is. Hmm. And then we like, get to where he, they're like, I think Akamian's teaching him algebra and he just like goes beyond Akamian's knowledge. And that's where like he gains Akamian's awe is just going beyond him. Yeah, I thought, obviously, uh, Akhamian is in awe of, of Kellis's intelligence and insights. But, like, I wonder if the thing that really draws Akhamian to Kellis is just the fact that he seems to care about him as a person. Like, there's this one scene where they're walking together and, like, all of a sudden Kellis asks about the 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 name of Akamian's mule and Akamian's so surprised and like touched by the fact that someone would be actually interested in him enough to ask about his his horse <clears throat> yeah that was good and that's what it seems like all of Kellis's teachings have been when Akamian says he's being taught to, Kellis is just working his way into him somehow. And Akamian's answer to what his horse's name was cool too, is he named him Daylight, because that's like when he gets away from his terrible wars and his dreams, or when he used to. 
And had we met, um, can't pronounce the the Grandmaster of the Scarlet Spires before? Is this the first time you've met him? I think he had mentioned, right? Or... We we did see him at the end of darkness, I think, where he has an audience with the Emperor, and they discuss the Scarlet's roles engagement in the in the holy war and um whether they will sign the the empress indenture so we have briefly met him before i don't but i'm not sure if this that was from his pov or not um and we also well actually we also like also akamian met eliaziris uh in momen when he marched almost started a riot yeah he marched into Zainimus' camp. So we have met him, but I'm not I don't remember if if, if those those two scenes were from Eliseris' uh, POV or not. Probably from other people's perspective, I believe. I think we've got one chapter in the previous book through his eyes, contemplating Yokus, the somehow clear skinned drug addict that's the oh, guy. Oh that's trusts. right. Right. That's right. You're right. I There's did a part forget about it. Where, where they're talking, and he, uh, it's like, come here. I need to fill the bones in your face. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, but like, yeah. I mean, was the infl- I didn't. I, I wasn't sure. But is like, was he was he suggesting that because Iokus's skin is transparent, he's probably not a skin spy? Because then you could just see the skin spy through the face. No, he's saying he didn't. He didn't even trust his transparent skin. He wanted to put his thumbs where he could pry it open and see if it would pry. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Um, but I thought the the scene with the Grandmaster of the Scarlet Spies was probably the funniest funniest scene in this in this uh, four chapters. The fact like he almost gets killed by, by this random low ranked sorcerer <laughs> just because he's so arrogant. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Was the sorcerer just lashing out at him, or why did why did he try to fight the Grandmaster of the Scarlet Spires? He knew he was gonna lose, right? I guess he's chained up right now. We'll see. Yeah, I think he just I think he just freaked out because uh, Eliasaurus seemed to suggest that he. They were going to imprison him and, and question him. So I guess he Well, it's 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 better at least to try escape, even if there's high chance he's 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 not going to be able to. Um since he's uh facing the, the grandmaster of one of the m- most powerful schools in the three seas. But he gave so it a he, shot. He realized what they were gonna do to him before they needed to tell him. Yeah. I think so. And now they want to kill Akamian? Or capture? Kill or capture? I think capture, interrogate, m- maybe kill. <laughs> but, I mean, they want information from Akamian, right? Um, that That's what their first meeting was about as well. They wanted information about uh, Gishruni and the and the, the, the skin spies, essentially. Okay. 
Like they were already suspicious of the mandate and of Akamian, but now that uh, now that uh, they learn about Skaos, they're like basically uh, certain in in their mind that the mandate is behind it, and uh, Akamian somehow responsible. And they they want to eliminate the threat that he he represents for them. Or he knows. Although I he, at, he at least yeah. knows. I think from like them saying that he was like horrified of him at first, maybe that was because he was gonna rat Akamian out if he was um a mandate tool. But mandate tools would have the mark of sorcery. True. Yes, I don't remember exactly how he arrives, but I mean, well, there's, I guess what they seem to be suggesting is that there is some alliance between the Mandate and the Kisharum, because they know that, uh, they, they think that Kamiya knew about the Skin Spy hmm. and somehow um, collaborated with it. So I guess it's, that's there's... what they're... It's just there's some things he doesn't know. Nobody likes to not know things when you're in the middle of a holy war. And he's worried that he like marched the Scarlet Spires into doom, like the first Grandmaster ever to do anything crazy like this. So he has like a lot on his shoulders as the maybe most powerful person in the realm. Yeah, you do get a sense from that scene that he's, He's been pretty stressed about uh, the decisions he's made recently. And uh, he's starting to question whether whether joining the Holy War was 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 the right choice. So he just needs to figure this variable out through a Kamian somehow. <laughs> Poor Kamian. He just seems to stumble into trouble all the time. He is yeah. the, the fool. But he also has a pretty dangerous job, I, I would say. Yeah. And I think he prefers it to the life he would have lived otherwise. I think it talked about him being like a fisherman's son down at the village. So he would have just been another poor fisherman. Going to a magic school sounds enticing, I think, if you're a poor fisherman. But yeah, it, it does. But I think he, he sobered up pretty quickly. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Uh, are you referring to the when he uh, when he was drinking and he ran into Espinette? Um, no, I was I was I was more referring to his uh, his um, idea of like what the mandate is and what being a sorcerer is and the way he idealized it when he was before he joined the school. Hmm. Um, but he does get very drunk in this in in one of these chapters. That is that is very true. <laughs> and I don't know if he's. Uh ever suffered up 
quickly. He got beat up and his face smashed. And that's yeah. how he found the SNET, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he goes from um, looking for services of another um, uh, woman to, or she seemed pretty young, um, to being beat up in the middle of the street and uh, finding Espinette again pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. My, my my favorite my favorite quote from this chapter was I don't think I wrote it down, but it was something he was like thinking like everything is smoke, and then he was like, I should just get high. I yeah. really like that. <laughs> yeah, he smells smoke and thinks about how I think he was talking about how the Slivendi like think life is smoke and only like actions are real. And then he's like, smoke, that sounds good. I should get some hot peeps. And then he just gets up and stumbles off. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I don't think he got any hashish. He did walk through an opium den. But I guess he changed his desires of that long walk through the camp. I feel like he walked to like the stables first and then went and sat by some people at a camp getting drunk with them until they started asking him a bunch of questions and then decided to go to the brothel camps yeah i mean i mean it's it's interesting to think that like you obviously have the army that's that's marching the soldiers but then you have this another body of people the the camp followers there that are following behind it and it's not just prostitutes, like, obviously, it's also, like, um, some, like, it, I don't know, just people, like, merchants who sell things or um, artisans, like, smiths. And... Yeah. Yeah, I think it mentioned blacksmiths, I think. Was... Blacksmiths, Fletchers, slaves, lots of slaves. Oh, yeah. People just to wash the rich people's feet, like a Lazarus's feet. Just like when you have an army that big, I think it's 200,000 people marching, you're going to have a large number of people to give them what a city would. Like it's just a giant moving city. Those people have money to spend. Yeah, I mean, the army cannot um, provide all the services that you probably would want on a march like this. And and I think it came in like was walking with a baggage. And then when Kellis goes and finds him, oh, I forgot what he said, something about how he likes to walk where there's fresh shit. Because <laughs> he's like in the back of the line where everyone else is already ahead of him. And then him and Kellis took their sandals off and walked in the fresh shit, I guess. Started teaching him. I thought that was a meadow, but maybe I got it wrong. When you got thousands of animals in front of you, there's just, it's, turns the ground different. Hmm. Have you ever seen like a parade with a bunch of horses in it? 
they have to have people like follow behind and scoop up all the crap. That's only like 20 or 30 horses. Imagine 100,000 horses. I'm imagining this place like smelling the worst, like like a, smelling like the dump all the time. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're not far from the truth. All those things you don't consider. Uh, speaking of, I, there was a, a line uh, about came in. He he needed a sandal. I guess the sandal was falling apart. And he said, "Where where can one get a sandal in in a situation like this?" And those things you don't really think about, like you take for granted that you can get a sandal. But you know, remember there's a sandal merchant. But little things like yeah. that. I mean, it's kind of a flashback to uh, the first book when Esmanet is walking from Sumna to Momem and her sandal breaks. She, she, she doesn't really... She has to find a place to have it repaired. And then, well, uh, she, she gets stoned instead. <laughs> yeah, she has other things to worry about shortly after that. But yeah, that's, that's right. I forgot about that. I guess it's a struggle everyone deals with. I think about my friends with like those plastic thongs when they like pop out. Same issue. Just got to throw them away and go buy some more. Glad we have awesome stores everywhere. <laughs> the, uh... oh, and I think it started out with like the Holy War marching and they couldn't even agree on like what way to march. So half of them are like, we're going the straight path and the rest went the long paved way and the long paved way was a week faster. The Scarlet Spires, they don't care for time. So they're just <laughs> strolling along. Lazarus just seems to like it. Yeah, I don't know if he likes it. It's, it's, it's just, I think the problem is they like, it seems like they brought like all their furniture with them. That's why they... <laughs> They're not traveling lightly. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they're like weeks think. behind. It's it's crazy. Like they they've barely left Momem and they're already they're already so behind. And then after the thing on the hill, I think Kellis kind of suggests not to wait for him. To just punish the Shrile Knights, because he just wants to see something bad happen to Sarsalus. Yeah, I think at first there is a there is a meeting between the the great names, right, where they discuss if they should wait or not. And there, Sabon is the one who's proposing they should march immediately. And then, Confus and Proyas, they all think they should stay because they need the Scarlet Spires in case they, uh, the Kisharum show up. And then Kellis initially backs Proyas and convinces everyone to stay. Um, but then, uh, yeah, they, they meet up again with, uh, with Salbon and with Tracellus, and Kellis changes his mind. And that's once again, like, Kel is showing that the truth can be multiple things. Sabon saying that that 
earthquake destroying the city before they got there. It was like a bad sign that they're doomed. And Kellis rewrote what a sign could mean. And just told them that it's like there's no turning back now. This was our last like turn back point and now it's gone. It's a sign that he wants us to keep going. So obviously it's a bad sign when the city like it breaks down that hasn't like I think it said that dragons had been there and conquered it and non-men had been there and conquered it and the stones still stood and then mother nature shut it down hmm. and then they showed up and it's just showing the way Kellis can command the truth into and to meaning whatever he chooses Yeah, it doesn't matter what the statement is. He can, he can uh, carve out the, the thing he wants out of it, regardless. He he speaks statistics, <laughs> so he can make it look good any direction he wants somehow. Or religion, maybe. <laughs> you know. Different people interpret different. Different people interpret the same text differently. Yeah. Which is kind of what. Yeah. And we get one chapter from Zerius, I think. <clears throat> Zerius Nitsara. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get a little little section there when uh, Zerius has a little present from his mother. His mother. Yeah, he was very curious about Sirius's uh, discovery of the Skin Spy and his war against the Kisharum. And um, she seems to think rightfully so that she should not, like, side with the Phantom in this war. They should try to destroy this Sishorum because they, like, already have infiltrated their High Council. So that's, like, open war. As far yeah. as she's concerned, and I think he's just in denial, but he also thinks that just has to be what they think. But he doesn't well, want to fight with his mom. He just doesn't like his mom at all. Oh, I was gonna say he likes her too much, but I guess both <laughs> statements are correct. At, at one point, he liked her too much. She couldn't control him anymore, though, remember? And that's when she lost interest. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of get the feeling, like, or I did anyway, with everyone's different uh, motivations and plotting that everyone else is playing checkers and Kellis is playing chess. It's kind of impression I had. I know, you, I know you both can't say too much, but you know what happens well whenever it goes into his view like or even nares who seems to know the dunyan better than anyone else it talks about how he is something more than a world-born man and even these people with high ambitions he said were just the exact same as lewis hmm. who he dominated used until he didn't need and then left to die 
the uh, the reunion. I don't know if maybe I'm just a softy, but the reunion with Aka and Espen it was a kind of a touching moment in a book like this. I thought just for them those two to come back together. I know was, they found each other in, in a weird, in a strange way, but uh, she they did find each other, and it felt like uh, it feels a little like they were. Um, they keep saying it's uh, instead of you or I, they talk about we and us. So it's a, you guys didn't tell me it's a romance book. I didn't know. <laughs> it's a yeah, I think there was... hope, I think, right? A dash of hope in there. What's going on? Why don't you warn me? Yeah, I, I think they're one of the few people in this book or, or series who have a genuinely nice relationship between them. Or, I mean, there are, it's a complicated relationships, relationship still. Um, but they do seem to genuinely care for each other. And, and like, yeah, I mean, yeah, they reunite and, um, their relation and their relationship changes quite significantly in that they basically decide to be together, which is not something they really were before. Like before Kamen still was a sorcerer and she was a prostitute, but now as minutes, well, they sort of, now she thinks of herself as, uh, what did they call the, uh, a Kamen's camp wife. Certain, not exactly a wife, but they sort of seem to have like formalized their relationship, basically. Yeah, he introduces her and kind of make makes it official. Yeah, and he introduces her to Kellis, which uh, seems to go well, I guess. Yeah, he uh, he challenges her. Well, honestly, challenges, but he he asks her questions that makes her um, kind of, I, I guess, question things. What is it? Yeah, he. he knows that she's really connected to Akamian, and so she. He wants her to like him currently. And she also, I th he knows that he, he's struggling to decide whether he's going to tell the school or not. Like he's having that struggle currently. Like, like Kella sees it in his eyes, just like he sees what Sarway says before she says it now. So, after yeah. that encounter with Sarsalus, when he, he like saves her and asks her deep questions, then she changes her mind about him and tells Akka not to tell. So, really, he just his whole goal is to have the mandate not learn because he just doesn't want to war with so many variables at once. Unknown variables. I mean, yeah, Kells definitely has a reason to want Esmanet on his side because she's the one who's been uh, nagging at a Kamian to just give up on Kallus and give him to the mandate. 
So winning her over is a big deal for Callus, I think. And he kind of does it the same way as with the comment. Like he, like he asks, like he asks her like very pers personal questions about like her life. Like and show, shows shows her that he cares about her experience, which I think it, it, like we've seen that that's something that Esmanet lacks. Like like something she's lacked in her life having people who genuinely care about her and who think that she matters. And I think that's something that uh, Kellis shows her that, yes, she, she matters to him, her life matters to him, or her experiences matter to him. I think that's part of, at least a part of how she, how he wins her um, to his side. I think when Kellis Irwin Akamian is talking to her, like, describing him before she's met him he says that like he's never he's never a guest he always makes you feel like a guest so he like describes it when he he's telling us that something about the mandate or the world he's like the teacher and she's the guest because she doesn't know and she's learning or when he says, when you tell me about your life, he doesn't reiterate, but when that like scene where she gets mad at him and just tells her about all the men she's been with, just didn't seeming, seemingly make him mad and it, it worked. Like the, when she's saying that, Akamian is the guest in her like world, but somehow Kellis is never the guest. And when he, when he stops her from Sarsalus, she like says, he's standing right here with me instead of like being a guest. Hmm. Right, it's like he knows her better than she knows herself, or at least as good as she knows herself. Which walks, I guess... He walks yeah. the conditioned ground, so all things have to bend to him. But in reality, it takes like all of his senses and force to walk this conditioned ground. Like in when he was reading Skaos's face and the people next to him so he could figure out who he was, he like read it, their lips from all the way across the room. So like, who knows how far away Kellis can hear too. Does he hear everything everyone in this camp whispers to each other? It's beneficial. <laughs> yeah. And we do see. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if we've had a. Uh, you know, we've seen the skin spies, but we do we have a POV from their? Have we had a their POV before? And was the end of chapter three? Yeah, the, there's another one, a new one, I think, a new skin spy, in the. In the prostitute camp, I think. There was one before the thing called Sarsalus. This was just some girl that had been following Esnet, apparently, and just living right next to her in the camp. 
I guess. In the camp, yeah. And was an arm's length away. We didn't ever hear the name, but it was called The Thing, whatever it was. So maybe it was like The Thing called Sarsalus. Or like The Thing called Skios. Yeah. We never got a Skios POV either. Only Sarsalus and only this weird thing. Maybe two two from the architect himself, maybe? Or was that from Esnet's point of view with him? I thought it was from her point of view, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I don't think we ever got the architect's POV. I think it was either from Esmanet's or the or Cicelis's perspective. What, what about when Enrao died? Because he was there. He definitely talked. I don't remember if it switched POVs or if it just if it just slightly went away from Enrao's point of view after he died. I think I that chapter ends with Enrao jumping off the balcony. So I would say it was, it was probably only Enrao's POV, but I, I might be wrong. And then the other one would have been Sarsalus's POV when he was talking to the architect. The thing called Sarsalus was asking the architect what he was supposed to do, I guess. So we haven't got a POV of the synthes yet yeah i don't think so. i don't think we have i don't think we have had it in um in the last chapter there's something that struck me and maybe i'm maybe it's nothing but um they reference the non-men and thinking that the stars that the stars are suns and how ridiculous that is because obviously that's not the way it works. Yeah, I mean, imagine living in a void. Yeah. It's un unthinkable. Yeah. <laughs> Filled with stars. Oh my God. And Akamian's probably one of the only people in the world that believes it, the other mandate, because they have the dreams. So they know that maybe someone with knowledge of the stars told them I, l I love how careful you are when you <laughs> certain things that you say uh, i was trying to gauge katarina's uh, reaction to what you're it saying did, it did talk about dragons like akamian was like reflecting on his dreams in the battles and the, the dragons fighting and the non-men a little bit and the inkoi and they're the ones who believe that because supposedly they came from another son, it said. <laughs> That's what it said. That's what a commune said, yeah. But most of the stuff in this can't be believed. <laughs> <laughs> And, and uh, Kellis does recognize Sarsalus as being a skin spy quickly, right? He knows that. So uh, but he doesn't 
I think he wrote, I think he mentions he doesn't want to overtly um, make it known that he knows, but he's um, he like I think Danny mentioned a few minutes ago. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to um, have to um, battle on a different front. He doesn't want them to know to. Um, before they take action, he's just observing, and um, so he doesn't want them to know that he knows yet. Yeah, he was like walking down the paths of probability. If he like caught him right now, or if he let him go, or if he tr tried to make a deal with him, and the best thing he decided was just to pretend that he didn't notice currently. Yeah, it seemed like Callus's uh, hard drive got a little overheated <laughs> when he was making that decision. Um, but yeah, he, he does conclude that for now, because he doesn't really know how powerful the consulate is or like how, to what extent they've infiltrated the Holy War, that it's, it's safer for him to just observe and learn more about the skin spies and more about the consulate before he confronts them and revealing that he can identify he can identify the uh the skin spice would immediately put him in danger because um the console would probably want to get rid of him as quickly as possible before um before the um the existence of the skin spice becomes more uh, uh more wide more widely known Yeah, he's got a lot of unknown variables to him, which are like rare for a Dunyane. He even says that the absolute is way way deeper than the Dunyane had thought, which I guess was the realization that Malangus came to that got him kicked out of Ishul in the first place. They thought he was crazy because he didn't like have their same belief. Now Kellis realizes that the absolute and the logos is still real, but it's just deeper, more complex, and even more cutting than they thought it was somehow. Hmm. And, uh, and it, it does almost seem like his hard drive overheated because it was one of the, maybe the only time that I can recall that he seemed even just a little bit vulnerable. They had they were talking like about him and he had zoned completely out and they had to like call him back into this reality. He had went far down the trance. Yeah, and he like in the end he's not really uh he he, he kind of gives up on 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 calculating computing the the shortest path right when he's talking to Sauban he basically uh makes a decision based on um chance when he when he tells Sauban that he should march out to Gidea um with his uh with his army um because like ultimately it's it's just there as you said there are too many variables the situation is too unpredictable like Kells doesn't have enough knowledge about the holy war but also about the phantom so he can't really 
predict what's going to happen if if Sauron marches, but he takes the chance and uh, realizes that at least he can he might use that as an opportunity to get rid of Cecilus by sending him off to to f die fighting the Phantom if there is a confrontation between uh, those two armies. But that's one thing he realizes. That's one thing we know he realizes. <laughs> when you read anything with Kellis talking or from his point of view, just know that it's like meant to persuade or break something. Always. It's never just like fun banter. There's no such thing as fun banter. Unless he wants you to like laugh and like him, then he'll get fun bandered. That's just because he wants like feelings before he starts cutting you. Hmm. The Dunyan only dominate. That's like all they do. So. Hmm. Just think about that when you hear Kellis talking to someone or hyping them up. Just. He's not a human. He's 2,000 years removed from human. That might be why he can beat up an air and he can read people's lips and learn languages in three days. <laughs> Only Ken, well, Ken Rita can learn languages in three days. I mean, <laughs> watch out. I mean, I wish. That would, that would, that would solve a lot of my problems. Um... <laughs> I can't in 30 years, so... Yeah. You're doing way better than me or Steve. <laughs> oh, thank Definitely. you. I appreciate that. So then uh, chapter four ends with uh, <laughs> Esmanet and Akka both agreeing that let's keep this a secret because Kellis is uh, he's too awesome to, <laughs> to tell anyone else about this. Yeah. Uh, he might he's, even he's be more than the Harbinger. He could be more somehow than... I think they yeah. even say he might be more than Seswatha. He could be yeah. just like Seswatha, maybe more than Seswatha. Yeah, he's he's more, but is, I mean, is that like more of what? Like more of Harbinger? Does that mean better or worse? You know. And I think we've seen in this that he's like dismissed god as existing because if god existed you can't like what comes before doesn't determine what comes after so this whole prophecy to him is just has to be fake otherwise the dunian logic like fails somewhere yeah but i mean he's already changed his mind about sorcery so you know he might change his mind about other things, maybe. It depends on how these variables all close when he chases them down. <laughs> Not a lot has happened in these four chapters, really. It was pretty slow going, but I have a feeling stuff's about to start happening. 
Yeah, I feel a little bit bad because we promised Steve uh, a crusade, and there's not a lot of crusading happened in this in these 100 pages. Stalled out, waiting for the Scarlet Spires. Slow ass sorcerers just getting there, like having slaves wash their feet every night while they sit in luxurious chairs. <laughs> what is war really? Will they have these chairs when they get to Shime? How luxurious is this trip going to be? I mean, it's a long walk. Guess we'll find out. Uh, anything else you guys can think of from the first four chapters? No, I think we pretty much covered it all. Um... We did not. We didn't mention Nayor, but he didn't have a lot, lot to do, in in, in these in these four chapters. I think he talked to Kamian once and thought about kind of telling him more, and just kind of ignored him and just told him he knows he's teaching him, but but does he know why he's teaching him? That's really all he said. And yeah, you can. He doesn't know why he wants to be taught. I guess. Yeah, and Ayur is a little torn, like, it, it's, despite his best effort, it seems like uh, he has some affection for the, for the people of the Holy War, especially Proyas, and that uh, he, he does thinking about warning them against Kallus, but then uh, the, the mission to kill Moengus is, it's too important for him. To, to give it up so he doesn't say anything. And I, I did wonder the first four chapters, it seemed like the this is a little bit more straightforward. I wonder if this was on purpose, like this was intentional, like he always planned to write the first book as this kind of, and I've only read a hundred pages, so it, I might be totally off base here, but um, from the first hundred pages, it does seem like this is a little bit like a change of style a little bit. I wonder if that was on purpose or if that was um, a change that he made after the first book because it was his first novel. I wonder if that was an intentional change or if he'd always planned for the second book to be a little bit more, um, I don't know how to maybe just um, like tra like traditional, I guess, or like a little free flowing. It's not as, not as dense. I don't know if that was uh, an intentional change. I noticed a couple of parts that were still semi-philosophical, but I think I haven't read a lot, but I, I think this is more like a military, like a military style fantasy or whatever, where there's a, a group of people all on their way to do something. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of going to have a, a different style in one sense. And now that they're all together and the world's been laid out, it can be less philosophical. And even maybe since the first book's philosophy is like intertwined in characters' inner dialogue, maybe they just, like when things are happening rapidly, they just think less and act more. Hmm. Yeah, I think the... The first book 
is pretty extreme in that in the sense that it is a lot of exposition mm-hmm. and you do start with these four or five different plot threads that eventually converge so it is it's kind of like in the warrior prophet like you already hit the ground running like you already know you already know most of the things you need to know i think to understand like the main story of of this trilogy um so I think just just because, like at least part of the reason why it reads more more easily, it's just that you like you already you already gone through the you did the exposition in the previous book, so this is kind of like the middle part, where the actions started to come in and things are starting to uh, happen, which may not seem like it from the first one hundred pages, but things will things will happen. I I, I can I can assure you of that. Um, but also, I don't know, like to your question, I also know that he, the, that Baker had a lot less time to write the second book than he mm. had, uh, for the first book. So maybe that have, might've played some role. Um, cause I think it's been like, he might've spent like 10 years writing the darkness that comes before oh, and wow. then had like one or two years to finish the whole trilogy. Oh, wow. Really? Wow. You think all through his schooling, he kind of already had the idea for the darkness to come before, and he just worked on that. And then I forgot what they call it. He did everything but the dissertation. I guess they didn't like accept his dissertation or something. So he, that's what, eight years of college, probably 10, 11 years of college he did. And then he got out and wrote the darkness that comes before and he got a publisher and then had like commitment issues after that where it was required that he worked fast but Hmm. to me the writing doesn't seem really rushed so maybe he just didn't get a fillet with as many little of his philosophical or philosophical nuggets of argument like he liked (laughs) to that he had 10 years to like splatter into the darkness that comes before but it remains quite philosophical. I think yeah. this story is just like a, they're on March. So it's like a, a go, go, go kind of book. Mm-hmm. Even if we for a moment stalled outside of the city waiting for <laughs> a s- slow moving army. I can't imagine moving 200,000 people, like being in command of moving 200,000 people across like a, foreign land that long ago it would be quite the undertaking yeah lots of uh lots of animal poop too as you mentioned before that's yeah. true yeah. human too yeah i mean they don't have toilets border potties i can't the olden days just had to really be rough <laughs> i'm glad we live in an era of deodorant and pleasant smells yeah, thankfully, I would I would love to t- to talk to Baker and just ask him about all of his. But my ultimate goal is for him to to chat with us on the last book when we were up with the last book. How awesome would that be? So would that be would awesome. be pretty awesome. Yeah. I I think he's gonna come back personally, but I've heard people say that having a daughter might have made like changed him. Hmm. 
I don't ever think he wasn't like a hopeful person personally, though. Though he might like believe humans are more computers than people. He has some crazy beliefs, but if you want to read about those, you just go to the three pound brain and bring a dictionary. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe if, if he's uh, if he's listening, maybe he'll maybe he'll be willing to come in and uh, come on the podcast with us for the last one of the trilogy. It, it was nice to hear Brian Baker at least say something about him. His brother, when he I think he sh- shared a post that he made about that old world they created and all their D and D campaigns, and said that maybe like an old coat, Harshcott Baker will come back to the darkness that comes before because it's warm and familiar. That the winter sweater, you know, we all have <laughs> a cozy winter sweater. It's true. Yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah, it was great. Um, I always learn so much more after talking to both of you. So thank you again for, for spending your time and coming to, to nerd out on, on the series. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Of course. Yep. Thanks for nerding out with me as well. Yeah, I'm, my experience um, reading it the first time was totally different. Uh, second time because of both of you. So thank you for uh, for helping me along because I'm not the brightest crayon on the box. So I, I need all the help I can get. <laughs> so, so Daniel, if people want to connect with you, where's the best place to find you? Uh, at the page chewing forums or just in the comments section of one of these videos. I'll probably see eventually. <laughs> And we're all in this crown box together, Steve. So don't worry. Okay, good. <laughs> and Katerina, where can people uh, connect with you? Uh, same. You also find me on the page doing forum, and I'm also on Instagram at uh, the errand. If you want to chat. Cool. Has anybody reached out to you there on Instagram? I wondered. Um... I don't think so. I'm not aware. Oh, if okay. if you did and I didn't respond, I I apologize, but I don't think anyone has reached out. He reached out. Yeah, I was just curious. Well, cool. So we'll be back uh, next Friday in the podcast to talk about the next part. I'm not sure quite yet which, how much we'll be talking, but I'm guessing at least until part two. I think it's about 60 pages. So, But we'll, uh, we'll be back next week to discuss the rest of it. So, or the rest of the next bit. Not the rest of the book. The, <laughs> the next little bit. So The next four chapters, maybe? Yeah, I think so. I think it's another four chapters. Part two is about 60 or 70 pages away. So Sounds good. Yeah. So we'll be back uh, next week. So thanks, everyone, for, uh, for hanging out with us. Talk to you next week.